Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Track and Field Performance Podcast. This is episode number 44 and today I was joined by physiotherapist from Melbourne, Australia, Sam Leslie. Sam currently works with many of Australia's top track and field athletes and much of our conversation revolved around the injury assessment and rehabilitation process. A few years ago, Sam undertook a PhD study in direction-based programming and briefly, and um, I would say also not so specifically, this involves utilizing exercise selection that fits athletes in various categories, such as extension and flexion-based, to ensure that they are kind of doing exercises that fast track or don't impede their rehabilitation process. There's much more on that in the episode itself. But Sam goes into great detail on how that's made his injury um, rehabilitation uh, process more successful, alongside many of the other layers that he uses when assessing and reintroducing athletes back into more stressful and intense scenarios. Those include things like using force plates to assess asymmetries and also eccentric strength testing to ensure that the athlete is fully um, ready to go, essentially, to reintroduce their event. But there was a lot in this conversation, I won't lie, and I'm glad that you know we have such a great guest on the show to talk about the complexities of rehabilitation um, and injury assessment in Sam. He also has um, labeled himself as a bit of a generalist. And for that reason, he finds himself, you know, talking an awful lot about stress and life management um, and how he's building an application alongside several other practitioners to improve the education of um, self-regulation and stress management so that athletes can become more aware and essentially, you know, monitor themselves to a better standard so that they can have fewer injuries and improve performance on the track. More on that in in the latter part of the episode, but I want to say, first of all, that there may be a few um, audio issues in this episode, mainly to do with the quality itself. So I apologize if you have trouble hearing or it's not as pleasant of a listen as it usually is. Um, but otherwise, I hope you guys had a really good Christmas and uh, apologies for the delay with this one. Um, but I hope you enjoy it because I know Sam has a lot of information to give you guys to take home. So onwards with the wisdom from Sam Leslie. Welcome back everybody to the track and field performance podcast. I am here today with human performance practitioner and physiotherapist, Sam Leslie. Sam, thanks for coming on. Thanks very much, Colin. Appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Sam. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of different things today because you, you're you kind of, a, as, as self-proclaimed, a generalist, uh, a man who wears many hats, but um, specifically working in uh, your clinic over in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, for those who don't kind of know you, I, I'd like you to kind of take the time to just give us a little bit of introduction to who you are and what you do. All right. Uh, well, I've got a practice um, out in the western suburbs of Melbourne in a suburb called Windenver, which no one ever he has heard of, heard about. Um, our clinic's named My Physio. We've been around for about 25 years. Um, I started off probably my international sports physio work working in cycling, but um, 
always had a love for athletics because being a previous athlete myself. So got into that, started working heavily with athletes in about 2013, so 10 years ago now, and was very fortunate enough to start working with some uh, very, very talented uh, athletes. Um, Josh Ross was probably my uh, my first supremely talented athlete, two-time store gift winner and um, double Olympian, 10.08. Uh, so I'm doing some work with him. And then as it is, as soon as you start doing good work, then I suppose word spreads. And then I've managed to um, continue working with a number of really good Australian athletes over a long period of time. And currently got a number that are uh, working hard to try and make it to the Paris Olympics. So it's uh, it's been enjoyable and it's, it's nice to be placed in a real position of trust um, amongst a lot of coaching teams. And saying it, as I said, uh, being a, a bit of a generalist is that my role's really expand from obviously physiotherapy, you know, from a uh, point of preparation and rehabilitation work, but I'll also write the strength programs for a number of the athletes, as well as doing some technical work from uh, in sprint sessions, as well as uh, technique driven as well with uh, a number of athletes as well. So I end up going from, uh, yeah, being from a physio to a strength to being uh, a sprint coach, as well as giving advice on wellness and holistic management as well. So I do a bit of everything. Most definitely. And I think that's why there's such extreme value for every coach listening to this is that you can kind of really speak to the crossover between these disciplines and how they kind of all work together in a, you know, not just a holistic setup if there's several people involved, but how, let's say, some of these coaches can begin to look at things through the lens of a physio, through the lens of an S&C coach and everything else. So um, I'm really excited to get into kind of uh, more of your practitioner work, but also like just how that kind of fits in the performance setting in general. Um, but, you know, you'd mentioned there just like the fact that you do write some weight training programs for some of the athletes that you're working with. And notice that we'll use the word athletics and track and field interchangeably uh, because of our U.S. audience aren't used to to hearing that. But um, yeah, who who are some of your influences mainly within like kind of track and field and designing strength programs? Because why I'm asking that is it's like, on one hand, you have the idea that, you know, maybe a physio looks at things um, very much from an injury prevention standpoint, but you very much understand the performance aspect too. So um, I'm kind of interested to where you get your your ideas and how you kind of mesh the two. Yeah, it's it really has probably been an amalgamation from two big influence. So the first one would be from... Um, I undertook a, car, a class or a course in clinical Pilates in 2002 with a guy called Craig Phillips, who essentially termed um, or created the term clinical Pilates, which has then been sort of taken over by other physios around. Um, now, his approach uh, is very much based on uh, a model which is traditionally associated with um, the McKenzie model. Now, it utilizes this approach called direction bias. So, his course really taught me to look at things always through this lens of direction bias, which we can chat about it a little bit. So mm-hmm. um, that and then in combination with working with a number of coaches over a long period of time, and I mean, that's probably one thing I'd love to say to any physio listening to this is wherever possible, work with coaches. You're going to learn more from them than anybody else. So I've been fortunate enough to work um, particularly recently with uh, Rolf Ullman, um, with uh, so one of my athletes I've been working with a long time is Jacob Despard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Rolf is absolutely brilliant um, when it comes to designing um, uh, strength programs, particularly his understanding of um, uh, eccentric strength um, and um, 
uh, oh, there's a word he's using. Um, it's, it's escaped me. Um, Red but force development is that? Yeah, it's rate of force, but it's basically that change over between decentric and concentric. Oh, force. the dynamic stability or isometric As strength. Dynamic isometric. I was thinking dynamic instability, and that's not right. Yeah, dynamic isometric strength. Um, so his approach with that. But then even over the time working with uh, more local coaches, uh, Scott Rousel has uh, is also been a big influence um, in terms of the way that they structure a program in terms of building up from a preparation phase and then um, and building it through various times of the year. That's, that's really been a big part of it. But um, I certainly... The one thing I think is done a little bit too much by a lot of physios is they tend to over-prescribe exercises. So um, I've definitely seen across the less is more approach as well as a lot of things don't require a lot of variety or a lot of change or frequent changes. Um, things, you know, the the gym programs are designed in order to put the athlete in a good condition on the track so the track is where they get their gains. Yes, there's lots of good evidence to show that strength training reduces injury rates, and it certainly does. Um, but the the actual performance gains that we're getting out of the track, you know, certainly at the let's say at the sub elite level, is more I think from a point of view of maintaining their ability to stay on the track and and complete in um, sessions all of the time, where that's where they get their gains. But fortunately enough, you know, working at the higher level as well, there's certain parts that we were able to implement in order to. I suppose get that extra change um, and uh, and reach those performance benefits. And the lens I look at it with the direction bias thrown in with the eccentric work, um, and then the the subtle changes with uh, focusing on acceleration change as the season progresses, which is the combination work we've done um, amongst all the coaches. It's actually yielding some really really nice benefits. We've got um, a lot of very very good athletes coming through at the moment that are benefiting from this. Excellent. Um, we are going to talk more about the the direction-based prescription and, and so forth. But before we do, just kind of looking at the foundation of like your clinical work and, and how you, I suppose, go about treating injuries, because that's going to be a big kind of uh, subject of today. And I want to know a little bit about, you know, how to start the process. And I suppose one thing that I'm picking up on here is that um, you're kind of influenced from Ralph Ullman, who seems to be quite data-driven. He's uh, very much someone who really likes to objectify what he's prescribing um, from from at least a little bit of research that I've done on him and, and seeing videos online and, and also noticing that he worked closely with Randy and so forth, Randy Huntington. Um, you kind of seem to take similar approaches with regards to injury treatment. Um, could you talk a little bit about, um, I suppose, yeah, the layers to, to how you kind of start assessing um, and implementing data to, to, I suppose, give direction to the treatment process? Yeah. Um, probably in terms of giving direction to the treatment process is I always want to know what my end goal is and what my timeframes are. Now, your timeframes might be based upon what you would expect a normal physiological healing rate to be. Or it could also be is how much time you've got that you've got, um, you know, you're willing to take a reasonable level of risk in order to achieve a certain goal. Um, I always find that I'll work at the end point and then I'll work backwards retrospectively. So therefore it might be, for example, I had a, an athlete that um, went to the world champs last year that had suffered for quite a long period of time with uh, osteitis pubis um, or pubelger as it's called nowadays. 
And uh, what we did when we worked with his coaching group was we worked out, okay, what he needed to achieve in the week prior to getting on the plane to head overseas. So therefore we wrote out, well, this is what a training session needs to look like. And then we're able to work backwards from there, considering how many weeks we had in order to work out every single week. All right. By week four, then you needed to be able to do four half run-ups and some jumps um, by by week two. And then four, we could probably start introducing half run-ups uh, and we're maybe um, with jumping uh, short approach jumpers, jumps. Uh, and prior to that, we're maybe just doing full run-ups or something like that. So therefore, you're able to, by working backwards, then it gave you a, a really good perspective on, am I reaching my goals? Am I, am I on target? Um, and that's why I like, that would probably be where I am working. And any time I've, I suppose, got the luxury of an extended period of time to try and work out where I am. Then what I like to do is get as much data uh, as I can throughout that time to see whether it's actually heading in the right path. So we're fortunate here. I, I like to sort of say that we've probably got the best equipped um, uh, private practice um, in Australia in that I like to collect a lot of uh, equipment that will objectify data. So uh, probably most common one would be force plates um, that I'll utilise there. So with all of my athletes that come through, it's it's very, very rare that I'll have them in when, when they're in good shape that I won't get them on the force sticks and I'll get a whole battery of um, measures done because they're going to be my return to sport measures. And um, it will also give us an indication that if they run a PB in the next couple of weeks, then all right, well, these are, this is how you were traveling in the lead up to that. So therefore, you know, in the unfortunate event that they might get injured, then it gives me a point of reference. Okay. Well, you know, they're 80% of, uh, you know, what their peak power over body weight is, or probably my favorite measure that I look at is um, eccentric rate of force development, which has been given, you know, uh, that Rolf has uh, has taught me about the benefit of that. In particular, I like um, uh, in the first 100 milliseconds or even the first 50 milliseconds. I tend to find with the force decks, the first 50 milliseconds is a little bit uh, unreliable. So I'd probably just go the first 100 milliseconds. And if you're looking at, you know, how quick you can do an eccentric force, you know, in Point one of a second, then it's it gives you some pretty good data on how the neurological system is working. Those sorts of things is that it's that's beyond voluntary control. So if I can get that sort of measure, then I'm going to be able to see how the athlete is tracking with their progress. Now, that's not obviously there's going to be a musculoskeletal component to that because you're getting a force production, but on the same tide, you're that even though it's a, you know, a, a test that they've done before, they're not going to be voluntarily being able to make that faster beyond what their pathology is actually allowing. So if I do a regular four-step test and I can track their eccentric RFD, then that's going to give me a good idea on how they're progressing, and particularly if I you know, go from one side to the other. So for that long jumper that I had, there was one side that was always a little bit behind the other one, and we were able to track how that progressed over time. The other nice thing is, is that it gives the opportunity to the athlete will get involved with it and, and they almost, you know, obviously, you know, it, it drives that competitive spirit and they get quite excited by it. And then it ends up being that they start getting a, a certain reassurance by the level that it is. Uh, so therefore, you know, I remember that uh, we were trying to hit uh, a level about over 100 um, on that eccentric RFT in the first 100 milliseconds on this athlete. And we weren't able to get it up until about two weeks prior to when he went off to world champs. So therefore that was awesome. You know, we're on the right track. This is fantastic. 
and uh, and we keep going through there. Now that we're rehabilitating and preparing him for this season, he's hitting over the 150 all of the time. So therefore, again, it's quite confidence boosting for them to know, well, hang on, I went off to World Champs when I was on about 120, now I'm about 150. So it sets the tone for the season is actually going to be really good. So Forstex is one of the things I like using. Obviously, it's going to depend on the particular condition, um, but something for like a uh, an osteitis pubis is is uh, extremely good for that. Um, you know, knee, quad, calf uh, are fantastic. Things like hamstrings, I probably prefer something a little bit different to the force deck, even though it still gives you that information from the neurological point of view down, which I think is very u- useful. But I like using, I've got a, uh, a K tower, so the um, eccentric um, or ex- yeah, eccentric, 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 sorry, from Sweden, their flywheel. Um, <laughs> So I first got my first flywheel from them. Actually, I was the first person in Australia to get one, um, which you know I like. I like buying new stuff. Um, that's kind of my hobby. And uh, I'll we we then got the K tower. So with the um, or sorry, the K pulley two, it's called. Um, with that, there's a dynamometry that's uh, attached to it, and the data that gives between concentric and eccentric phases is it's it's fantastic because. One thing uh, I have a little bit of a problem with handheld. Uh, well, the handheld dynamometry is useless. I- sorry, is useful. I'm not saying that don't do it, but if you've got the opportunity to do um, measure something eccentrically, then it's going to give you so much more information. That's not funny. So therefore, with a K meter attached to the K pulley, then you can actually compare what their concentric versus eccentric force production is uh, for end stage hamstrings. And um, I, I got a post on this on on my Instagram where I had a young 400 runner, and isometrically he was measuring e- evenly, uh, concentrically he was measuring evenly, but eccentrically there was like an 85% difference. Sorry, it was a 15% difference. Oh, wow. Now, I'm not about to send him back to 100% sprinting when there's a 15% difference um, on that. Now, it made sense too because he was uh, it was a significant tear. It was probably it was around about 10 centimeter and interlaminate into the tendon um so therefore it was probably going to be a five to six and he was only around about week four at that but he was like feeling great and i had him running at 80 percent. and but it was the okay are we going to ramp it up now to 95 i was like no so utilizing that data and showing it to the coach will also get their buy-in get the athletes buy-in as to actually why we're choosing to choose a particular pathway and that's why i, I do feel that sometimes handheld stuff and and concentric stuff can actually let us down because i'm always interested in the nervous system first and then the musculoskeletal system because i think it's the nervous system that governs it um so i like to use as many tests as possible to to almost see how the nervous system is behaving um and some tests that i like to do for that uh I, i tend to use a lot of dynamic stability tests so things like um just standing and standing on one leg and doing five single leg heel raises. Um, it's it's quite a challenging test in itself. And you you always get, you do it and someone will say, oh, um, you know, my balance is shit. But what it is, is their nervous system is essentially not switched on to actually perform the task. And don't get me wrong, of course, there's a musculoskeletal component to this, but the subtle changes that you can evoke with the correct intervention, they're not musculoskeletal changes, like maybe over six weeks but certainly not within five minutes of retesting. So therefore, by changing the nervous system, by essentially applying a force or offering better sensory information coming into the system, 
then you can get a better performance. And as a result, then therefore you're going, okay, I'm getting a better, better performance. The nervous system is now activated better. If I can harness that into their rehabilitation, into their training, then I'm going to get a better result. And by doing that, you can show to the athlete, all right, well, this is why I get you to do your activation or your rehab exercises prior to when you're in the gym or prior to when you're at the track because you now perform better. And they'll say, yeah, actually, you know, that felt easier or I felt better or there was no pain. And you get that buy-in. So that's the other reason why I like using a lot of objective data, even if it's just something as simple as using a video um, or, you know, just uh, some resistance stuff. But the objective stuff is uh, like with the force plates and the K-meter, I really like because some of the things I do is a bit weird. Um, I think uh, I have been described by you know, um, certain coaches as, oh, Sam does all that weird shit. Um, so therefore I like to justify it by following up within, with objective intervention. Uh, so with a follow up each intervention with objective data, because if you can go, well, I've done this and I prove this and this works. And if we do that, which is what's normal and what's normally expected, and that doesn't work in this particular athlete, then this is a good justification for why we need to take it down a different path. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's generally the, my approach with using a lot of data. No, there's some really great nuggets in that. And especially with the eccentric side of kind of, I suppose, the final stages of the rehabilitation process and getting back to full kind of um, intensity, I can see how that, I suppose, missing that piece would be the difference between a retear and and kind of uh, going back to full health and being able to continue your training. But something you mentioned there alongside the force, um, plates and stuff like that is it possible to use even the likes of my jump or something more accessible to kind of get similar reads for the purpose that you're talking about yeah i think i find the my jump uh, again the my jump would be very good uh, as a comparison for um like the the, the pubelger or the uh, the osteitis pubis something like a, the hamstring i don't feel quite so much um we could potentially utilize something like there's the G flight, uh, which also measures ground contact time. It would be a matter that you could set it up um, and have a, a path set up on the floor where you've got the G flight set up and you want to do a triple hop because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, doing a triple hop for distance is still going to be a decent test for that ability for the hamstring to maintain that isometric force. And I suppose get a measure of that dis as well, the dynamic isometric strength. So there, there are other methods that you could do. Um, the, the biggest, I suppose one of the, the biggest things that shit me a little bit with um, uh, physios is they don't test things enough acutely. They might test things on a more chronic state, so therefore every four to six weeks they might measure someone's strength or do – and as I said, it, it might be an isometric, which if that's all somebody has, then so be it. That's okay. But I think we have to test things functionally, and you have to test something in my eyes after every single intervention – because otherwise you don't know which intervention is actually having the greatest effect and which ones are, um, are you, that you're actually going to waste your time with as well. Now, in a performance setting, and I'm fortunate enough that I've been to you know, a number of international competitions, I don't want to have to do seven different things to an athlete prior to a warm-up. I want to know that one thing or maybe two things that works for them. So therefore, if I can test them within the session that I go, that worked the best, I'm putting that in my pocket and prior to, you know, the national championships, I've got five minutes to actually get you right because, you know, it's gone from heat to final. It might be hurdles where it's only like an hour, 10 apart. Then I'm going to do that. So therefore I don't, you're not spending too much time on my table. 
rather than, oh, look, we'll see how we go, a little bit of poke and prod and guess. And I don't like that. It really irritates me. I think you can really, uh, I suppose, make the physio profession a lot more professional by testing after everything and keeping a record of which are the techniques that work best for your athletes. And, you know, I'm, I suppose I'm fortunate. That's really my approach. And I think that's why I have a lot of the athletes that are quite devoted to me being around with them at competition. Mm-hmm. Because that's my approach uh, with them. And we don't waste time and we get results. And there's probably a fatigue element to that as well, where if you're doing, yes. you know, 10 plus techniques on the table, you're taking more out of them. And you're it's so cute. Yeah, that's right. Physio is tiring. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm an unabashed fan of manual therapy i i use my hands a lot um however you have to understand is that you know in the lead up to a competition or before an event you really want to keep that to a minimum because it is fatiguing so you're on so onwards to i suppose yeah the the directional base um program and you had you had talked about uh to me before we, we got on here is that you've actually been undertaking a study over the last number of years on this um on this method so could you could you speak more to to I suppose the process of that study, but also like how that informs your practice your practice as well? Yeah, well, direction biases. Um, so I just briefly alluded to before, it stems from this McKenzie model. The McKenzie model was along the lines of is that if you uh, uh, someone presents with a pathology, if they move into a particular direction in a repeated manner, then you'll get a reduction in symptoms. Now, direction bias takes that a little bit further and says if you get someone to move in a particular direction in a repeated manner, you can get a move an improvement in movement quality. Now, what that ends up meaning is that everyone will have a preferred um, uh, way of moving or a preferred way that they can actually generate their force and generate their power and refer that as their direction bias. Now, as soon as I know that, then I know that when I put that person in that position, I'm going to get a a better force output and I'm going to end up getting a better movement quality from them. Conversely, and which is often probably even more importantly, is that if I put them in the opposite direction to what their direction bias is, then they're more often than not going to get a lesser movement quality as well as they can tighten up, it can stress the nervous system, and in some cases it can increase pain and uh, mitigate injury down the track. So therefore knowing what someone's direction bias is extremely helpful for prescription of um, certainly exercises and creating gym programs. And that's a study that I undertook in 2015. So I started a PhD in 2015 at Melbourne Uni. Um, It's actually been deferred at the moment due to probably too much travel (laughs) by myself is is probably the biggest reason plus a few other reasons. But um, I undertook a pilot study on it and we got that published in um, JSAMS. And when that, uh, what we found is we did a eight week strength program on uh, a bunch of uh, sub elite athletes and where there were half a group was um, set aside that their gym programming had the lens of direction bias. So therefore they only did exercises that matched what I had uh, assessed as being their preferred direction of movement. For example, when I say direction bias, these people will have a, uh, they will prefer to move generally, in a, uh, sorry, they'll generate more power into a position of extension or they'll generate more power in a position of flexion. 
So with the help of Craig Phillips, who I mentioned earlier, is that we classified a, um, a bunch of common gym exercises into what was more likely to be extension, what was more likely to be flexion. And if someone was an extension bias exercise um, person, sorry, had an extension direction bias, then they would be more, they would be given all um, exercises in the gym that had an extension focus to it. If they were flexion, the opposite. The control group were given a mixture of the two. So therefore, that was pretty much what everybody gets nowadays. So a traditional gym program, people don't really know what I'm talking about with extension and flexion bias. So therefore, majority of exercises are given with a combination of the two. So we found that when we basically separated it out is that um, on a number of measures, well, basically across the board, uh, across a bunch of athletic measures. So there was 20 meter sprint, um, the pro agility 5105. There was uh, vertical hop testing and um, three hop for distance test. Now, with the vertical hop testing, they had uh, we did eight vertical hop uh, in a row because I tend to find in the first three or four hops, there's the body. I suppose it it's got a fair amount of resistance to it, so therefore or resilience. So you don't tend to notice how poor someone might be on one side to the other until you actually get them under fatigue. So that's why we chose eight vertical hop. With the uh, the study that we found is that those that were given the direction specific exercises, uh, they had a significant improvement in those um, in the vertical hop. So it was like seventeen percent improvement in a repeated vertical hop test um, across sides. Their pro agility test, I think, was a seven percent improvement as well as the 20 meter sprint, uh, sprint and the um, three hop for distance. It didn't reach significance, but it was around a two and a 3% improvement with that. But um, what was most interesting to me was in the post hoc analysis of it is that those athletes that um, were classified as extension bias, they improved roughly around about uh, 6% uh, with the program. But those that were classified as being flexion bias actually improved 25% yeah. with the program which was pretty wild. Now, the thing that we find with a lot of the flexion bias athletes, and this is one thing I see in the clinic, is the most common athletic presentation that presents with injury um, in the clinic are those with flexion bias because majority of uh, traditional gym programs will involve pushing weight against gravity. So therefore, as soon as you push weight against gravity, the body normally pushes into a position of extension. If you're flexion bias, you don't like that. So therefore, a lot of gym programming will stress the nervous system, potentially create a poorer movement pattern, and then can actually make them uh, more likely to get injured. So for those flexion athletes, when we took away all of the across gravity and we made them all work into a position of flexion or load them in a position of flexion, the results we got were quite phenomenal. Uh, so that was probably the most significant part of the, the study. So as a result, that's why I look at everything with this lens of it being either an extension or flexion. Because if you classify them appropriately, it gives you the ability to, even from a distance, um, well, first of all, like in-house, in we can prescribe exercise appropriately. But it also allows you to, when you're designing return to sport programs, you can actually keep people extremely active at, at high intensity as long as you're keeping them, let's say, within their direction bias. So if someone feels safe in extension, then there's a lot of things that you know they can do uh, for example, uh, I, I, a good one, let's say someone re recovering from a hamstring strain, I'll, I get people back jogging day two uh, afterwards. It's, you know, 
unless it's a rupture. It's, uh, it's, it's not uncommon that they're out there. Now, for someone who might be extension biased, then you expect, so when I say extension bias, their lumbar spine and their lumbar pelvic mechanics is more in a position of relative extension and their hips would be coming into extension. So therefore that's more in a position of um, top speed or maximum velocity. So therefore for those guys, I would probably be encouraging, okay, we'll just do a slow acceleration and let's work into closer to, well, you wouldn't get the maximum velocity early days, but you would be working into, okay, you're okay to run at top speed. Um, you know, you might say 70, 80% early on, but I'm more concerned with your acceleration phase. So therefore someone who might be extension biased would be like, well, we're not going to do block work for a while. You know, we're going to, we're not, we're going to avoid the acceleration phase because that's when they're going to be more bent over, um, sort of the, the crouch starts, so therefore they'll be loading themselves more in a position of flexion. So therefore it, it gives you that ability to prescribe these, um, still a fairly decent training program to these athletes with that as a lens of classifying if someone is flexion or extension. Conversely, if someone is a flexion bias, then you would say, all right, we're just going to work on our accelerations, but we're going to avoid maximum velocity work. Um, but then you can also you know carry that over into other things like um, – uh, someone who is flexion is that they might do a lot of work on the bike uh, because in the bike you can imagine obviously they're more crouched over so their hips are in a more of a position of flexion their lumbar pelvic complex is more in a position of flexion so when they're loading that the body is actually not getting stressed or the nervous systems are not getting stressed so it allows the healing process to occur as well as you know having all of the complementary effects of exercise with endorphins human growth hormone blood flow etc cetera, etc cetera. um one that I really like doing is, uh, again, for extension biased athletes, is downhill running. Um, so I find with downhill running, if you imagine that someone running downhill, then that, again, is going to accentuate that position of probable anterior pelvic tilt. And if soon you've got anterior pelvic tilt, then you've got a, a slight excess, uh, increase in the lumbar lordosis. So therefore, that's complementary to it being a extension bias exercise. The other thing with downhill running, as we know, is that it helps maintain frequency. Um, and as long as, uh, I suppose, you know, we, we don't have, uh, issues with the knees, the knees might be a slightly different issue. Hamstring is something as well that you have to be careful of because of, uh, the shin angle. You don't want them to shinning too much and overstriding, but for a calf injury, it's phenomenal. So, because the, the benefit with a calf injury is that you've got the downhill momentum, so they don't have much plantar flexion torque or push off that they have to do. Uh, so therefore I utilize for. All of my extension biased uh, people, <laughs> patients that come through that, uh, you know, we, we want to return to running is they'll institute downhill running quite a lot. And that fits into the whole extension bias paradigm. Conversely as well, you can do uphill work as well uh, for those that are flexion biased. Um, and as we were saying, you know, complementing that drive phase. So that's really what I like about the whole direction bias process, because as soon as you've been able to assess if someone is flexion or extension, it gives you uh, a really good ability to be able to determine um, what are some exercises they can get back to quicker and what part of their sport they can get back to quicker. So therefore, we're not losing all of our effects. I'm dead against rest. Um, I, we try and get people exercising as much as possible. But then on the other side, it can also serve as a testing point for when someone might be able to get back. So, uh, for example, if I feel that someone is uh, – uh, an extension, well, I want to test them what's their load 
capacity in a position of flexion. So if their hips are in flexion, their lumbar spine's in flexion, and we might be doing some repeated testing in that. And if that changes their, uh, let's say their movement patterns, or if that changes their uh, dynamic stability, like say the single leg heel raise or a hopping test or something like that, then I know that their body's not tolerant to that sort of force um, force against what their preference is at that particular time. So the, the more that you push them into a position that is against their direction bias, then the body will resist. Now, in an ideal world, people will have the capacity to be able to do everything. And that is what we do try and do is we get them to a point to say, all right, well, you're now fine to do both flexion and extension. But it's a good lens to have in those early stage of rehabilitation to say, okay, this is going to work. You can still train really, really hard. And I just want to keep it focused in this um, in this particular, I suppose, half a spectrum of exercises. Similar exercise, uh, patients that um, or athletes that have got an injury history, they're often ones that do need things to be controlled more. So there'll be some exercises I don't want them to do now. And will I ever let them do it? Maybe, uh, but that's going to depend on what I feel might actually be lacking from their sport and are they actually progressing as I want. But if they're hitting the marks where I want and I've pulled front squats out of their life or leg press, then I'm not too fussed if they're still jumping eight metres. Um, yeah. Long jump. That's, that's really where I work on that. I'm interested to kind of ask about this more in the sense that like with your extension and flexion athletes, have you noticed that maybe those extension athletes are a little bit more on the, how would I say, muscular side and then the flexion are a bit more on the elastic side? Um, it sounds yeah. like when I, because when you're talking about this, I'm just picturing like running mechanics in my mind and like the people that kind of tend to be a bit more biased one way or the other. Yeah. Yeah, I would say as a general rule, yes. But as soon as I think we look at things with that lens, there's always going to be an aberration that changes mm -hmm. the eye. So um, the long junk athlete that we we both know, he's um, you know he's very wiry, he's very elastic, but he's not he's extension. Uh, so he, he's one that's going to that kind of breaks the mold a little bit mm -hmm. there. He's um, so he's probably not quite like that. But yes. As a general rule, sort of, you know, the and that, that concept of pushes and pullers, and mm -hmm. I do tend to find the pushes do tend to be extension and the pullers do tend to be flexion. So that's probably one where there has been some subgrouping done by Eltis, which I think match in fairly well. Whereas um, the the idea with the direction bias is because uh, it, it basically it, it stems from the neurological level and. The pathway or the explanation as to why it works is fairly complicated. It's really at spinal co spinal cord level, um, and the um, how the interneurons will mix with the motor neuron pool, and that's based on what afferent or sensory stimulation you can actually supply into that area. So, therefore, the more let's say flexion afferent stimuli or sensory stimuli you can put into the interneuron, you know, at this central pattern generator level is that you will therefore get the matched motor neuron output. So therefore, the idea behind it is that if a, an athlete has been injured in a position of flexion, then basically the body doesn't like being in flexion. So therefore, the body will have a natural inclination to reduce the amount of sensory stimuli that is coming in from the flexor affer afferent stimuli. 
and then it will make them um, prefer extension. So therefore, how someone gets injured, if you're so generally, not generally, this is how it works, is that if you're injured in a position of flexion, it's more likely that you're going to be extension. Um, likewise, and, and the way that uh, other ways that we can sort of ma um, match this in is people will have habits that, uh, and they'll, they'll say to you things like, look, if I sit down for half an hour, I just stiffen up and I feel crap. So if someone is sitting down for a half an hour and, and that's the case, well, they don't like flexion. So they don't like flexion, then they're most likely going to be an extension. So these are things that we can add into um, or bits of information that we pick up in order to determine what someone's direction bias is. But then you can test it within the clinical setting as well by give them some repeated extension exercises, put them on the force plate. They jump better, their stability is better. Then that gives us something to work from. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot in that, but it actually rounded off the explanation beautifully. And um, one thing that I've heard you say there that I think is important for coaches to pick up is that like rest in, in injury situations is is not, you know, I, I think many people know this, but there, there's just such a variety of ways to keep the nervous system going. There are such a variety of ways to tap into, you know, um, alternative, I suppose, patterns of preference, as you've just kind of mentioned there. Um, I, I can definitely like, um, understand that as an athlete myself is when you kind of get hurt in a certain position that um, you know you kind of are a little afraid to go back there if, if I tore my hip flexor at, at top speed then I can see why the alternative is a great route to kind of I suppose exploring in the early days to get confidence back but to keep the training effect going um, and I love how you've kind of described that not only from like a gym perspective because we always think about the rehab exercises more often than not in the gym side of things but then there's also the running how we can implement that in a very contextualized manner whether it's like 70 percent acceleration for the for the uh, extension or the flexion athlete and whatnot i think that's all really like creative and useful information that like coaches should uh, really be kind of um, allowing to marinate after listening to this discussion. But I want to move on to another like very important piece that kind of taps back into the, the spine side of things that you kind of mentioned is a core component of, of um, some of the direction based programming. And that's, that's more like the use of rotational power and, and, and I suppose the utility of that and how it kind of influences mechanics and everything else and force production and, um, you're someone who kind of believes in in implementing that work. Um, what do you think are some of like the advantages um, with and, and, and I suppose also ways in which you can implement the likes of rotational work? Yeah, well, the um, the spinal engine theory is is one that's been around for a few years. Uh, there was Gratchevsky, uh, um, and uh, that certainly. Um, Really working on that premise is that the, it, the spinal rotation and, and how it bends and flexes will determine how the pelvis moves and the legs are basically just a, an added addition which um, exaggerate the force movement that's actually happening at the spine. Now, a lot of the time this, this concept of core stability is a little bit limited because, as we know, in order to uh, reach, reach a full stride length is that the pelvis needs to rotate uh, both forwards and backwards. And, and that's basically around that central column of the spine. So as soon as someone is restricting how much spinal rotation or let's say bracing that someone, or if someone is bracing too much what's happening in the torso, 
then they're really going to limit their stride length. Um, so therefore, often you'll see athletes with, you know, that that might be six foot two, but they're running with a stride length of a five foot ten athlete. And they're the ones that I would actually think, well, there's going to be an issue with their, um, I suppose, their own spinal rotation. Now, that's going to feed down or both feed down and up. So if we're going to feed down, you tend to see, like, I suppose the best time that you can really emphasize the point of the uh, the spinal engine theory is acceleration phase um, in a sprinter. So when they're coming out of the blocks, the hip internal external rotation forces are enormous. And that's something that we should be encouraging because it, um, it allows that uh, length tension arrangement and allows a better generation of force. Now, as more top speed is, is gained, then they do tend to strain up a lot more because ground contact time starts becoming more important. But it's certainly in the the, the early phase of, um, of acceleration, then it's it's paramount. So that but the other thing I suppose I will see with, um, uh, I suppose, uh, what happens with athletes that can have a dif- deficiency in rotation, if they end up being too tense, as I said, we've got the shorter stride length, but you'll see what happens as well as they do tend to lack a lot of stability laterally across the hips. And as soon as they lack stability across the hips, what will happen is the external rotators of the hips will try and assist to improve pelvic stability. Um, now, as soon as the you're asking the hip external rotators to do something that they're not particularly designed to do, then they're going to tighten up. So therefore, you're trying to make it more of an isometric force um, rather than a concentric eccentric get the full lengthening. So one thing that we'll see is that if somebody has uh, a weak uh, lateral chain strength, so that's going to, let's say you could do a glute meat uh, resistance or hip abduction, then those athletes you are generally going to find a, a restricted hip external rotation as well. Conversely as well is that you work up the spine, they're going to be restricted in thoracic rotation as well um, because, you know, where you're stiff one, you're going to, it's going to end up further up the, the spine as well. Um, and they therefore start to habituate these running postures that tend to be a little bit choppier. They might utilise a high frequency, but they are reducing, I suppose, their potential because their stride length is going to be short because, um you know, whilst, you know, frequency is super important, if you've got two athletes of the same frequency, whoever's got the sight, the biggest stride length is going to win. Uh, so incorporating that rotation component is going to be important for just fluidity and and, and running mechanics. I had a, a 400 meter runner a, a few years ago, and I used to tease him and said that he, he ran like Robocop. Um, he was very, very, very straight up and down um, with a big emphasis on stability. So one of the drills I got him doing was we were doing a lot of functional chain um, rotations where he was um, working from a position, you almost imagine, where someone's about to do a shot put um, and, and then they spin out of it and, and extend out and lengthen. Uh, we were doing works with that um, with a cable, but then just a more simple one was I got him to go to a playground and use a monkey bars and uh, got him to make sure that he was extending at least three rungs of the monkey bars. And that allowed him to ex- uh, really open up his thoracic spine and get that rotation and teach his body that you can have the rotation through the thoracic and then the counter rotation through the hips. I would even get him holding into that position where he would uh, say be three rungs apart and then just rotate, rotating his hips from one side to the other just to reteach that sort of movement pattern. And, you know, not saying that this was the the golden 
um, uh, the golden bullet on this one. But at the end of the day, he did drop two and a half seconds from a high 48 um, 400 meter runner to a high 46. So he um, he did that. That worked really, really well, just in terms of teaching that capacity to improve rotation. But I mean, the other aspect is, is quite simply, is that if you improve somebody's rotational ability, then you're going to improve their lung expansion. If you improve lung expansion, then you're improving oxygenation. Uh, and that's even another factor, which is really just quite a simple one. Yeah, that's that's beautiful because I think I had to learn myself, like, God, when you were talking about high frequency at six foot two, I had flashbacks to when I had osteitis pubis myself. And um, like that, I wasn't doing very much rotational work in the gym at that time, but it wasn't until I kind of went to the US for a couple of years and uh, my coach at the time, Glenn Smith, was talking about just the advantages of opening up the T-spine and how that's going to really contribute towards your pelvis being able to move efficiently. And yeah, my stride length thereafter kind of opened up a lot. But I think in the long jump and and and, convert, and conversely as well, the, the 400 meters, like massive advantages for having, you know, the ability to, to move through large main ranges of motion. Um, I don't think there's really any track and field discipline where you wouldn't want that. But I guess what I'm saying is I can... You can definitely picture it in those two events how like elimination of stride length is not going to be your friend at all. Um, yeah. And so it's it's definitely something that I think coaches um, are catching on to now with the work of like Franz Bosk and, and things like that is, is, you know, incorporating those movements in more dynamic fashions as well um, mm. because it has... Yeah, sorry. I tend to use uh, suspension slings quite a lot with that. So red cord. Um, yes. I know it's not a video, but you can see it hanging behind me. Um, <laughs> uh, that's um, I utilize that a lot too because that is going to teach the ability to um, getting one muscle group to work while the other one might be stopping still or controlling that movement through. And it's that idea of lengthening. Okay, I want to lengthen from toe to fingertip by opening up, but then controlling it in that sort of phase uh, at the same time. And, yeah, if you can get controlled lengthening, then you're winning. Uh, rather than bracing and holding because, you know, we, we don't run like Thunderbirds. It's it, it doesn't work that way. We, we really have to try and be, you know, you, you look at, um, you know, Federer, you know, it, it, they, they move like silk, whereas, you know, those that are, are more, you know, holding stiff, then that's where not only are we, I suppose, more energy is involved with doing that, but generally those don't last as well as long on the circuit because of uh, injuries, because there's just higher forces involved in order to maintain that, I suppose, that stability and um, in order to achieve a certain level. So therefore, those that can move more fluidly, then they end up getting, as we said, the, the larger stride length and more efficient movement patterns. Do you have any like particular philosophies on the likes of core work? Because I know this is something that well, I've thought a lot about like in the last kind of year or two is is how advanced should that kind of more I don't want to say general work but we'll just say that it's not you know it's it's often supporting the um the more specific stuff and and I suppose how advanced does core work need to get um yeah. and as a physiotherapist and, and someone who's you know very involved on the strength side of things as well like you'd be able to speak to that uh better than anyone and you might mention red cord there and that could be a part of of this discussion as well but um yeah just just wanted to get your thoughts on that yeah yeah i've probably got a few uh and i'll probably might hit a circle back to a few because they're probably mm -hmm. all a little bit um first one is with my, my core work in inverted commas um 
I, essentially, you know, we, with that, we're looking at proximal stability, and it's basically the ability to control movement positions. One of the best tests I'd, I'd have with it, and it's almost like an imaginary one here because it's audio, but um, you might have someone lying on their back um, and they've got their feet straight up in there or depending on the hamstring length, let's say they're flexible, <laughs> not like me, um, and they might have their knees up, their, their legs straight up at 90-degree angle pointing at the, foot, at, the, at the ceiling. And you're lying on your back and you've got your hands across your chest and I'm going to ask you to rotate your feet from one side um, back to the middle and then to the other side. Now, inevitably, everyone tries to go as far as they possibly can. Now, at that point that they've gone as far as they can, there's going to be a delay in in control. So it's like you've got a bit of momentum, you put the brakes on and you've kind of got the brakes on and then you're gradually trying to bring it back. Mm-hmm. Now, at that point where you've got, you, you had control of the movement and then you're trying to regain control of the movement, well, that's a perfect example of Rolf Ullman's dynamic isometric strength and that one, you've lost it. You, you don't have any dynamic isometric strength there because you don't have control of the movement. Now, one of my issues with a lot of core work is that people tend to try and put themselves into that position where they're just about to lose control and then they regain it. Now, I don't see any point in that. So I feel that most programming I do is looked at trying to train the nervous system first. So it's almost like I'm trying to create a better motor neurosignature. Now, if I can get someone to move to a position and then they can pull it back into that and they've got maintain that control all along, then to me that's a stability exercise, not a oh, look how far I can go just before I fail. And I think an analogy I use is that if I ask you to play Beethoven's fifth on the piano, if you just kept banging out the wrong notes all along, are you going to end up playing the right um, notes? No, you regress it and you make the exercise easier for someone so they can do it before you do progress to something harder. So with my core stability stuff or proximal stability or whatever is that it's always done with a lens of, okay, I want to be able to control those end ranges in order to elongate the movement, but I don't want to put them into a position they've lost control. So that's probably my first premise. <laughs> the other one I always look at is, again, through the lens of direction bias. So therefore, if someone is a flexion bias, then they'll benefit from, now I'll keep things simple, from, you know, things like sit-ups. Um, because if, you know, that's a repeated flexion exercise. But if someone is extension bias, they're not. Now, I've done a few case studies, again, you know, which I've got on Instagram on that, is um, where I've had athletes that are extension bias. I get them, so I'll do a force play test. I'll get them to do some repeated sit-ups and then they'll do the uh, the force plate test again and their power has dropped or their stability measures have dropped um, So, or their eccentric RFD has dropped. So therefore, to me, it's like, well, people say, oh, well, they're tired. So I go, ha-ha, okay, no worries. So I'll then give them something that might be uh, an eccent- sorry, an extension core stability exercise, let's say like a plank, and we might make it a dynamic plank and they will do it and then they'll put them back on the force plate and they're suddenly better. And they go, oh, now they're warmed up or something like that. So they're like, okay, no worries, do, the, do your sit-ups again and then they're crap again. So you can actually play with it that way. So therefore, again, my core stability exercises, I like to be married into if what someone's direction bias is. Now, probably there'll be some people that will try and get me wrong here and say, well, you're saying you'll never be able to do that. I'm saying, no, no, not at all. There are going to be some peer- people that are going to have greater resilience um, against 
say what the antibias is. So an extension person actually like a bit of flexion and that's okay. And there are some people that they can handle everything. Great. Do everything. It's fine. But then you'll have some that a little bit of flexion tends to set them off and that stuffs them up. So therefore I want to be more controlled with them. Now let's say it's part of their sport or you've got someone who is, you know, uh, well, I had an athlete in today and we're having trouble with block starts. Every time he does block starts, he's having trouble with his knee. But if he does an easy acceleration to the first 25 metres and he can hit maximum velocity so he can do his 400-metre runner when he's running his 350-metre reps, as long as he eases into it, then he's got no issues with his knee whatsoever. But when they're doing acceleration phase out of the blocks, we're having issues. So that's an easy one for me. As right now, I'm saying, you're not doing blocks for a couple of weeks. We need to actually settle this down. But you can still maintain, obviously, your training. And if I've got a 400-metre runner, he's still managing is 350 meter reps, then it's still fairly, he's still training at a, at a, at a high level. It's, this is not a concern. However, at some particular point, I'm going to have to get him into the block. So therefore I do what I like to say is a compliment sandwich. So, you know, everyone knows a compliment sandwich is, is like, you know, you know, Colm, I think you're fantastic. I think that's great, but I wouldn't mind if you just work on this, but don't remember, I still think you're ace. So likewise with, uh, with his block starch is that we're going to do probably some speed work or he's going to do his extension bias rehabilitation exercises before I throw him in the blocks and then he'll finish off again with some extension bias rehabilitation or activation type exercises in order to let's say straighten him out again and to give the nervous system something that it likes doing so that's I suppose where I like to with my core stuff is is to throw that in with um with the lens of keeping to the direction bias and then my end stage stuff is um, a lot of core stuff is fairly uh, low um, maximum um, contraction stuff as well. So I tend to try and get a lot more higher force, even with perturbation, and match it into the uh, the length of time that the athlete is uh, competing for. So uh, I have got a 110-meter hurdler, so therefore I get him to do his all work uh, really high force. So an example would be is that he'll be hanging from the chin-up bar. He'll have a um, 20 kilo uh, throw bag over his uh, over his feet, and he'll be doing some uh, repeated hip flexion, and he'll be doing it holding it for 14 seconds um, because you know that's well. Hopefully he's going to go 13 seconds this year <laughs> um, in order to maintain that force, and it's making it relevant to him. So therefore we do lots of 13, 14, 15 second bouts for him. Um, before we give him a rest, but make it a very, really high intensity. Uh, and that will be, I suppose, my third lens on my core stability programming as well. But I treat core as a uh, as serious as what I treat the gym programming. Um, it's not something that they just do at the end and just make up time. It's got to be quite specific in my eyes. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful way to cap it off because I, I suppose that's where I originally kind of, I suppose, developed the question is, like what's what's the end product look like and 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 how specific is it you've mentioned in time frames and and then i suppose relation to load as well there that can um i suppose exceed maybe the general um prescription that that i see many uh you know getting in forms of of core work so that's that's really good uh, and you've got to build it to a certain level i mean to throw straight out and go okay we're only doing 15 second reps you know with a, right. a not a base but yeah as i said it's uh it's a progression yeah and that's that's the thing is like a lot of people start off with the remedial stuff and 
it obviously depends on the training history of the athlete, etc. But I would say that maybe halfway through the preparation, as things get more intense, maybe coaches tend to say, well, look, we're just going to maintain that. We're not really going to push the envelope anymore on it. Um, and I've had a few kind of conversations with people that are like, no, no, we're, we're looking for adaptations with that, just like we are with everything else. So um, I think that just is something that I felt you particularly could speak to, um, yeah. which is which is really good. Likewise, um, I that I'll utilize the objective testing again with that. So like, I, as I said, with that, uh, it was actually a volleyballer I had that uh, we did the repeated sit-ups for is that I want to see whether they're actually responding well to what I, to what I'm after. Um, and we spoke early in terms of, you know, somebody doesn't have you know, access to force plates, but I think because I've got everything with the lens of just making the nervous system happy. So a simple test like doing a straight leg raise test, you know, most people know what that is where they lie on their back and you'll get them passively in order to, um, uh, with a, a knee fully extended and, and to take their leg up. I mean, originally it was, you know, decided that was a, a length of the cytic nerve test, but it's really not. It's going to give you a very good idea on how stressed the nervous system is. Now, of course, you want to have a baseline measure, but if you do uh, an intervention such as, you know, you'll get them to do a dynamic plank and then their straight leg raise is a lot worse then that's indicative to me that the nervous system's now under stress. Now, as soon as you've got the nervous system under stress, then I'm not going to get a, a cleaner movement pattern. I'm also going to slow down my healing rates as well. And I also don't think I'm going to improve that motor neurosignature as well that I was talking about because the body's like, well, I don't like this. So therefore, the body doesn't like to retain things that it doesn't like. Conversely, if I do that and the straight leg raise improves in its range of movement, then again, it's giving me an indication that I've calmed the nervous system down. Now, I don't have any scientific data to show that other than that's something that I see regularly within the clinic and it correlates very, very well. So therefore, you don't need the force plate sometimes in order to determine if someone is actually moving better. Just by seeing changes on how the nervous system responds will give you an indication, okay, my rehabilitation program or this particular strategy or intervention is going along the right path. Mm very very important to say is that for those listening and don't have all the fancy tech uh mm. there there's a there's a core takeaway here and and i i can see how much of your kind of again treatment and for interventions really do relate back to that not only direction bias but the um the influence on the nervous system and, and how important that is uh, versus just purely looking at it from a musculoskeletal standpoint which i've i've definitely personally had experience with when dealing with physios is that there's really not enough reference to that, but I think, you know, I can't say this for your um, background, but it seems like the coaching side of things has really probably made you even more in tune with that uh, or, or being influenced by coaches kind of has, has I suppose, yeah. made you believe in that more. Yeah, I, were, I was fortunate enough to work with Randy Huntington in 2017, and that was probably three weeks, it changed my life. Um, I was at the World Champs in London. And uh, his uh, attitude to the holistic management of the athlete was just eye-opening. Um, now, it's something which I suppose as time has gone on now, it's becoming a little bit more common, but, you know, this is six years ago now. And uh, and he'd been doing it for <laughs> 20 years as well. 
uh, he's uh, he's an absolute genius. So um, just any chance anyone ever has to listen to him and talk to him is is extremely helpful. But that aspect on I suppose embracing the the athlete as a holistic being is is so important because even uh, you know I suppose that's one thing I like about objective data is that you can utilize that to give a, an athlete confidence, but so you can and just with your hands, um, you know, and that's one thing that's a benefit of soft tissue skills. Um, just uh, your communication skills, you know, with an athlete prior to a competition and telling them that they feel good and listening to them and getting to focus on certain things or distracting them of certain things as well. I think those certain skills are something that um, physios don't probably appreciate that they actually have those skills and at the competition level is extremely important. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's something that I try and bring to the table all the time um, with my athletes because the coach will be a lot of time very business um, and and focused on that. So therefore, you as a therapist have got the opportunity to bring something different to the table, or it could be the other way around. Maybe the coach is more easy going on it as well. Whereas you might be going, all right, switch on. You need to do this and this and this, and you might actually take on that role. So by having being part of a coaching team actually allows you to be, I suppose. The person that you know whatever's lacking um at that time and i think that's uh where it is helpful actually being a bit of a generalist as well and having experience across a number of sports as well as over a number of years to jump back on that holistic process and and you mentioned randy just embracing that a lot you're someone who posts quite frequently about lifestyle factors uh, online and i think that's that's a part of the holistic, um, I suppose, life and stress management of the athlete and how an athlete can stay healthy. Um, you know, you've got your medical side, as you mentioned, your team, but you guys have probably learned all too, too well in years of practice that if the athlete is not taking care of themselves outside of training and clinic hours, you know, there's, there's really not a lot of, I suppose, control or, or, other interventions that you can have that will ultimately hold the test of time. So I know you've been developing an app um, to kind of increase the awareness around athletes' abilities to self-regulate themselves. And I want you to talk a little bit about that because I think that's a, a really, really um, useful piece of uh, information for coaches and athletes. Yeah, oh, thanks. Um, yeah, so we're developing... Um I'm part of a, a group called Equal, um, uh, E-Q-U-I-L, and uh, we're developing sort of health software. And the one that we're working on the moment is a um, athlete wellness slash, slash uh, performance management app. Uh, well, it's actually a powerful website application, so therefore it won't have to be downloaded onto the phone. It can be off the website, but then it's got a um, mobile. It, it can be used straight onto the mobile phone. Now... There, there's a couple of components to it. So therefore, as a there's will be a wellness monitoring aspect to it, which is not something new. However, we have a number of the questions that have been randomized through to make um, it a lot more user-friendly than a lot of other wellness um, <laughs> monitoring services where you have to answer like 20 same questions every day and after a while you get user fatigue. But um, these ones uh, are rotated through. The other aspect to it is that there's... Um, physical performance uh, aspect to it. And we're looking at some AI um, uh, analysis, which will basically, you put your phone up and it will look at how you might do a particular test and it will give you a score on how well you might be moving on that particular day, just like a coach's eye 
might do, um, as well as looking at uh, load monitoring and, and what your own, um, I suppose, what your load parameters have been over the, the last you know, couple, of, uh, couple of weeks. When we throw all that in together, then you'll actually get the idea of a, a readiness scale. So throwing those sorts of things in together is, again, not an overly unusual thing, but there's a, two, a couple of aspects of what we brought into it is there's going to be a uh, notification to the athlete or the therapist that if someone hits below a certain level, then the athlete or the therapist, sorry, the coach or the, athlete or the therapist will be notified to say, oh, well, Colm has dropped a little bit below this so I can shoot you a message and said, you know, what's up, mate? And you say, oh, look, I slept crap last night because I was doing this podcast with this Aussie um, and uh, <laughs> he gave me the shits. And um, so therefore I'll say, look, what we'll do is we'll just back off training a little bit today, um, just ease it off because more often than not, is that we have this tendency that we will keep pushing ourselves hard, even though we know that we're feeling a bit crap today. We'll still, if you set me a session, I'm going to do that session. But unfortunately, when our readiness is low, then we've got a high risk of injury. So that's one side. But the other part that we're putting to it is uh, an education um, course with the the, uh, the website application. So with the course uh, is that it will teach you things on how to improve your sleep, how to improve your recovery, uh, how to reduce your stress levels and various techniques to do with that. Uh, there's also models on um, uh, different breathing techniques and when's the right time to breathe. Uh, so utilize each of those techniques. There'll be ones on um, the female athlete uh, training around their cycle. Uh, there's also going to be ones on some gym programming, mobility and core stability work. However, whilst that's going to be, say, information driven, what we're going the main emphasis of it though is to actually teach the athlete i suppose their own body literacy so body literacy is a term i really like to do is that i want you to be aware of what it feels like to be on or what it feels like to be vulnerable so therefore they're on a particular day is that i'm not moving so well today and i'm aware of that so therefore i'm going to back off my training a bit or conversely i feel a million bucks I've only got an easy session planned today. I actually want to talk to the coach about it and I actually want to go a little bit harder because this could be a breakthrough session for me. So the more that I can teach my athletes on when they're on and when they're not um, and what that feels like, that's the whole purpose behind uh, the website application. So it's not it's more than just education, it's the why. Uh, and and we work pretty hard on that and um, nice as well that we've got um, some artificial intelligence that so there's even a uh, a feature which allows you to ask, um, basically it's me, it's my faith, ask me a question on, you know, what's a, for example, uh, when's the best time to eat prior to a competition? Now, all of the research we've put into it, which so far consists of about 600 pages <laughs> of research, um, we've typed into the computer and then the uh, the AI will search through all the research I've done and it will give you the answer basically on what research I've written. So therefore it's basically, it's it's my research, but rather than being, uh, let's say I suppose the database being Google, the database is the work I've done. So therefore it matches into an athlete specific population with this lens of holistic management and body literacy. So at the end of the day, every question that you ask is going to improve your knowledge for your own further benefit. Um, and yeah, so it, hopefully that's going to be released probably uh, around about the start of February is what, really what we're looking at at the moment. So it's looking good. That does sound like a wonderful piece of tech. Uh, and I suppose no doubt it's been developed with a lot of different uh, 
lenses and, and, and people with experience in, in different settings. And of course, ones that work heavily with athletes. And, and I myself have found like it's taken me a long, I suppose, long time to, to improve my self-knowledge through, you know, being years in the sport and anything that can expedite that is, is really invaluable because you don't want to have to make poor decisions and, and suffer massive consequences to get the information you needed uh, prior to that. So I think it is yeah. something that is going to really be a game changer in terms of avoiding injury and, and obviously a benefiting performance. So yeah, I, I'm excited yeah. to to keep in in the loop about that and and also hopefully use it when it comes out if it is made available in Ireland. Um, I should have oh, I should have said it's actually going to be called Peak P E A K. So I, uh, I I should get people looking out for it soon. But um, yeah, just that aspect. I I remember Dan Faf saying is that uh, as an athlete gets older, they have a tendency to dial in more onto their nutrition. And to me, the one thing I put to all my athletes is that if the 100% version of yourself lined up against you in a race right now, how much would they beat you by? And if they say, oh, well, they'd kick my ass, then you're thinking, well, you're doing things wrong. Or if they say, well, they probably wouldn't beat me by much because I've got my wellness factors dialed in. So I've got my sleep, my nutrition, my stress, uh, my sunlight, uh, my hydration, et cetera, et cetera. If you have that dialed in, then you're maximizing your potential to be what you need to be as an athlete and and as a human being on this earth. And um, I think we owe it to ourselves sometimes. We get a little bit lazy because it certainly does. Not only does it improve our physical being, but that certainly improves your mental well-being as well. Um, And not just mental from a point of mood, but also in terms of our own capabilities on this earth as well. So Mm -hmm. the more clarity we have, then the better outcomes that we can actually um, provide for ourselves and our families. Yeah, that's totally true. And I think I've I've even noticed how my ability to self-regulate with paying attention to myself in sport allows me to kind of input that kind of strategy in other forms of life or, you know, that the level of self-awareness is 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 able to be used in other settings as well. And that's the thing. It's not just looking at it in the singular sport context, but it's it's looking at, wow, I could actually help myself and other people across varieties of areas in life. So I think that's totally true, Sam. Um, the last thing that I want to ask is, of course, with keeping up to date on all of your projects, but also the fact that you post more um, more frequently and, and, and more extensively on topics like lifestyle factors on your Instagram page, as well as any other platforms that uh, you you know you frequently use, tell the listeners a little bit about those and how they can find you. Yeah, uh, I tend to mainly use uh, Instagram, uh, which will be just linked to our Facebook page. Um, Instagram handle is Sam Leslie underscore Sports Physio. Um, also through my clinic, uh, which is My Physio underscore Evolution. Uh, they're the probably the two main pages I use. Um, I tend to use Twitter a little bit, but not so much. And uh, I think that's Sam Leslie Physio. Um, Instagram is really where uh, I get most of my stuff. And any articles I write or blog articles, I link into my my link tree, which is part of my Instagram as well. And so I've written a few articles with Simply Faster and I did one with Train With Push as well along these lines. And uh, normally outlining some of the gadgets and the objective measures we use and, and things I can do in order to improve uh, various testing as well. So 
um, yeah, it's it's enjoyable. I definitely enjoy the uh, the case studies and, and writing things up and, and sharing that out and certainly appreciate the opportunity to be able to chat with you, Colm, and uh, quite flattered that you've asked me as well because I'm a big fan of your podcast. So it's uh, it's been great and I really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you for that. That's that's really nice of you to say. And great to have so many different outlets for the audience to kind of delve into each of those topics or whichever ones they found most pertinent to their situation more deeply. So be sure, guys, to check out um, Sam's Instagram page as well as the articles that he's written with Simply Faster. Um, Sam, thanks so much for coming on today. Uh, you had mentioned that I'd be the one staying up late uh, during the podcast, but it's an actual fact you who staying up after hours in your clinic time um, to chat with me. So I do really appreciate it. Um, I, I should let you go now uh, so that you can actually get some sleep. But I know I know myself, if I've had a big, thorough conversation with someone, that isn't always the easiest thing. Uh, that's good. I've got a 40-minute drive home, so I'll, uh, I'll calm down on the way home. It'll be fine. <laughs> Great stuff. Well, thanks so much, Sam, for coming on again. Uh, it's been a pleasure to chat to you. Um, for the audience, Christmas is, is, is soon approaching, so I hope you have a safe uh, and relaxing Christmas break before we get into the business end of things, which is the indoor season, and it is right around the corner. So until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye.